As a penis researcher, I understand why men are concerned about their size, but believe me, science shows that there are more impressive species out there that don't seem to care about their size. Check out my chat with Timothy for more. The next season of podcasts are designed to catapult you out of ordinary thinking into a specific type of light. The type of light that shines brightly on information that you may or may not be comfortable with, but will certainly push the boundaries of your intellectual capacity. Hey, what's up, guys? I'm Timothy Maurice, and what a privilege it is to bring you ideas, conversations about the link between the brain's power, the potential of brand stories to shape us, and ultimately, to elevate our thinking about what influences us and how we influence the world. Today's episode goes to the heart of influence. What if I told you that gender inequality continues to persist because male scientists were so preoccupied with the penis and their bias narrowed the world's view so much so that men were elevated above women in our deepest unconscious mind. My guest today, a woman, is a penis scientist and her study of the penis, not just humans but across the animal kingdom, reveals powerful truths about how we can begin shifting our thinking and why we have to to pursue gender equality and equity. You're going to love this conversation. Meet Emily Willingham, author of Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. Enjoy. Emily Willingham, welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Uh, Thanks for having me here. I'm glad to be on. Congrats on your timely book, Fallacy. Thank you. You've discovered and shared in your book there are lessons from the study of both the animal penis and the vagina that can help with gender equality. Let's explore that. Are you ready? I am ready, I think. Actually, wait, before we dive in, tell us when you became interested in being a science writer and how you began researching the penis. I have always been a writer. I think I wrote my first book when I was five. It was about my wardrobe and I illustrated it. (laughs) I'm not very good at illustration, so that didn't catch on. But um, I got a bachelor's degree in English and worked as a writer for quite some time, for several years, and then went back to school and got a PhD in biological sciences, which was in gonads, which is how I got started down this track, because I did my postdoc in penises, actually. I was looking at how they develop. And during that whole time, I was still working as a freelance writer, um, mostly in the sciences. And... After about a decade at the bench, I turned to freelance writing full-time with the exception of being a classroom lecturer. Compared to much of the animal kingdom, you've discovered the human penis is rather boring compared to the complexity of many other animals. So I would would like to add that it's, it's boring in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of features that you find across many, many other species, but that means that we get to have a lot more fun with it, I think, because you can do a lot more with something that doesn't have spikes on it, right? I think, or most people would perceive it that way. Other species tend, I mean, it depends on their courtship rituals and what they go through to make physical contact. And the general pattern you see is that the more penises or penis-like organs have like spikes and mace-like structures and points on them and hooks and all these other things, the more likely it is that there aren't going to be a lot of boxes that the two partners check before they make physical contact. It's going to be more of a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am or sir. And um, we don't fit on that end of the spectrum. It's not boring. It's just more fun, I think. (laughs) Let's give one example, for example, of 
a species that has a very complex ornament style penis. Okay. So the one I, I use over and over again in the book is a seed beetle. There are a few species of them, but they all have common characteristics of having penises with, with the spikes and the barbs and the ornamented is one way to put it, I suppose. And they have a what is called a jaw-like structure that when it's inserted into the genital tract of the partner, it actually leaves little marks that look like jaw-like structure marks. So that's obviously quite different from the one we're used to on ourselves. A female researcher who studied the penile and clitoral blood flow response study. Are you familiar with it? She's a Canadian. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cindy, it's with David Buss and Cindy, Cindy, I can't remember her last name. I know exactly who you're talking about. She's at UT Austin, or she was, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, and and I think the idea was that she would show film images on a computer or a TV and whatever there was arousal to, she would ask questions later on about whether or not they were actually aroused because she had the actual measurements from the blood flow or um, or the, you know, the movement in the genital area to suggest where the arousal was. And I wanted to just sort of, you know, the idea of arousal inconcordance or arousal incongruence, the idea that the penis or the vagina can appear aroused by something, but consciously you may not be attracted to that. Right. I wanted you to share a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, there is a disconnect, and it can be a disconnect, right, between that the blood flow and what you're conscious of. Um, it's an emotional response. It's not just a sexual response. And I think that's one thing that I, I had a, a whole book. I had to cut it because the book was too long. I had something about that in the book. But, you know, arousal is arousal. The body part that gets aroused is not necessarily a signal of the type of arousal that's being involved. And so I, I, it's my understanding that young men, you know, can be sitting in algebra class, you know, the most dull thing on earth happening up on the board in front of them and suddenly have an erection. Like it seems like it's out of nowhere. And, you know, that's not because they're super aroused by algebra, right? Yeah, Although exactly. personally, I love it. And, you know, I think it's very interesting. Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> Um, there is a lot going on there. And you see in a lot of species, there's arousal in a situation where you're not, <laughs> there's, you're not something sexual going on. People also, you know, their, their gastrointestinal system speeds up quite a bit under kind of situations like that as well. But it, you know, it doesn't mean that they suddenly became hungry because of what they saw. It's a physiological yeah. kind of broad spectrum effect. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think more research and, and more Mestin. people reading work. Cindy yeah. Meston. Her name is yes. Cindy Meston. Yes. Yes. Oh, how long did so that much. take to surface? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's uh, who that was. Thank you. And then I think that <laughs> once we understand more, I mean, you can imagine the the judicial system could really sort of honor women's testimonies and women can be like, you know, despite the fact that my body may have responded physiologically in an orgasm and does not mean I was actually wanting to be there. And I think this is the power of your research, really understanding the scientific breakdown of the genitalia. All humans have positive and negative biases. Of course, a negative bias that plays out in your book is that for a few centuries, men who happen to be the majority of scientists have been preoccupied with the male anatomy. 
and how the lack of the study of the female vagina and anatomy has influenced our current state of gender equality. Can you speak to that a little bit? I think it reflects our, st- our current state of gender equality. I, I kind of had a sense that there was an imbalance in the studies and how they approached the, the, the two sort of broad categories of genitalia, of the thing that inserts and the thing that re- that is inserted into, which would be vaginas in our parlance. And I got to the chapter on vaginas, which I kind of centered in the book. It's actually a central chapter of the book (laughs) and went in to write about vaginas because in evolution, if you see a lot of ornaments on a penis, you would expect to find them in vaginas. And I was really looking forward to like, man, what are we going to find up here? But there weren't a lot of studies on it, it turns out. And one of the features of that chapter is that one of the first studies in vertebrates, especially I entomologists or a different story is that the, the duck, have you heard about the duck penis? Cause everybody knows yeah, about those. Yeah. Sure. Very corkscrew like ballistic emergence, all these other things, which implies, you know, that there is some tension on the ground where these physical, physical structures meet. So you expect to see, you know, look into a vagina and find something interesting, but that didn't happen until this century. <laughs> and the person who actually went out and collected a duck and looked was a woman. She's a female scientist, Patty Brendan, Brennan at um, Amherst in Massachusetts. And um, did I say Amherst? I think I mean Mount Holyoke, sorry. Yes, in Massachusetts. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it took us that long to look in there after you figured out that the, the, penis on the duck had so many accoutrements I feel like we should have looked sooner and I think that is a reflection of the imbalance of representation in sciences until pretty recently and the imbalance of who's asking the questions and who's answering them and deciding how they're going to be answered the symbolism of the penis as sort of the initiator of human life the device from which the fertility process begins is this the viewpoint that that put the penis on the this sort of proverbial pedestal that you see as undeserving i it's uh, so uh, undeserving i'm not quite sure it it makes sense and this isn't a universal or anything but it certainly was common in a lot of cultures i was reading about especially for the last chapter of the book that at first they started with a with a an, an embodied you know person figure right that was standing guard over fields like scarecrows would right like praepus who's a greek god who's notorious for being kind of unattractive and having a gigantic erect phallus um, originally was a scarecrow figure. And there was this very strong association between agriculture and um, that, that perception of fertility is this visual sign that comes, you know, emerges from a penis in the form of semen. Um, I think people made that connection quite a bit. And plus the physical, the greater physical strength on average that men have. Right. And so that was used as protection, as a, a totem for, for, for fertility. Um, the ancient Romans had what are called fascinum, I think. that's We get the word fascinating from that, which is, to me, fascinating. Uh. <laughs> um, where they had phalluses on amulets and had little wings. And that these were things that children wore because they were protecting the child from evil forces. So there's this association with it. And I don't know that it's undeserving as much as it is kind of unfortunate in the sense that it removed the rest of the person from the body part. And there's this sort of like kind of centuries long emphasis. And especially today, it seems like maybe it's been this way all the time on that, just on the penis, right? That it makes a man and a man has to have one. And so you you go back and you start to see that rise with the rise of agriculture. Yeah, I, I mentioned undeserving because I think that 
science has shown and much of your own research has shown that many animals don't even use the penis as the initiator. There are species that kiss to begin the fertility process. Right, right. I mean, I think that it's erroneous to set it up, to prop it up that way and say, this is it. Obviously, I mean, it doesn't do fertility by itself for one thing. And to to have it be centered, I know this is ironic coming from somebody who wrote an entire book about penises, but part of the purpose was kind of decenter and contextualize the human version, right? So that maybe we could go, oh, well, look at all these interesting specimens out there. Ours is maybe a little backgrounded as a result of that. Maybe we could look at the rest of the person instead. Let's unpack, I think I'm saying it right, intro meta. Yeah, I made that word up, kind of, sort of. Um, intromission is the act of inserting <laughs> penis into the genital tract of a partner. And these organs across different species and tags and all these people have these specific you know, ways of referring to them. And I, there are a dozen, at least. And I just didn't want to go through the whole book explaining this over and over again. So I coined intromittum, which is a singular, which is the, you know, the inserted item, and intromitta is the plural. And those are both neutral terms which I did on purpose because that turns out there are lots and lots of species where that occurs on the, the partner that makes the eggs as we would call them. I mentioned earlier the idea of exchanging, you know, the kind of fertility experience through kissing. Um, I think the Tuatara, Tuatara? I don't know oh, if I'm okay. saying Yeah, Tuatara. Um, you mean, like, you're referencing cloacal kisses then, The right? cloacal that, kisses, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, I was thinking, man, there are a couple that do mouth-to-mouth, but no, you were talking about the cloacal version of it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, you can come up with anything, and somewhere out there is a species where it does do what you just said, <laughs> right? Um, the <laughs> The cloacal kiss is is a really um, intimate kind of thing, actually, when we think about it. That it's common among birds. It's animals that don't use an intermittent, don't use some penis-like structure for internal fertilization. And so what they have instead are these, both partners have these. They're called a cloaca, which is Latin for sewer, which is terrible. But oh, it's wow. just where, yeah, where any fluids emit, right? So urine, semen, whatever comes out of this opening. And so they tend to go through pretty um bespoke process of of mating dancing kind of before they make physical contact and when they do make that contact they it has to be a kiss between these two cloaca so that the semen from one can transfer into the other so it has kind of a nice name until you realize that cloaca means sewer (laughs) how much of heterosexual norms are based on human hormones and chemicals, you know, sort of the role of testosterone, estrogen, and so forth, uh, versus social conditioning. For me, it just seems like there's a margin in there somewhere that it's unhealthy for people to talk about. I think there is a margin. Obviously, I don't have an answer to that question because nobody seems to have an answer to that question. I think that what needs to be distinguished maybe is this idea of, yes, of course, steroid hormones have an effect on your physiology, right? Um, But yeah, right. So, uh, you know, testosterone or dihydrotestosterone, it's going to have a differential effect on you versus exposure to comparatively high levels of estrogen, for example, or estradiol. Um, but it also depends on, you know, which tissue we have so many tissue options in our bodies, which cells are they responsive? How are they, do they respond because these have differential and opposing effects and cell, different cell types, all kinds of mixed up things. 
And what we need to remember is when we talk about these effects, those are averages. They're not individual. Yes. And, right. Yes. And so I think the first thing we need to do is just kind of grapple with the fact that those are averages. And when you start to get down to individual level data, you're going to see something that looks more like a continuum. And so then it kind of trying to, you try to figure out, well, where do you put the line if you want to make this a binary, right? Got and it. I think in an in a era of big data, we're at a place where we could dispense with that, trying to draw the line and instead focus more on those individual aspects, individual levels and, and connect those with things like manifestations like behaviors or, you know, physiological endpoints for healthcare and that kind of thing. I think we're at a phase where we could do that now instead of just trying to create two broad buckets that people have been trying to use for millennia. You have sons. I mean, if you are speaking at the average high school to a bunch of 15 year olds (laughs) about the complexity of this conversation, it seems to me that their daily experience sort of operates and, you know, revolves around the kind of stereotypical norms how do we have this conversation? Well, so I'm kind of here. Here's a, the question I think that we kind of need to ask and answer now, because I do have a 14 year old and an 18 year old and a 19 year old. And I graduated high school. I'll just say the decade. It was in the eighties. It was a while back. Right. And um, they're having an experience in high school with what you're describing that is extremely different from the one that I had. I had friends who identified as homosexual. I had friends who identified as bisexual. I had friends who now are, you know, non-binary and all kinds of other identifications, but they weren't talking about that in the eighties for the most part, unless they trusted you a great deal. That's different now. I I teach and have very recently taught people who are 18, 19 years old. And then my, my sons talk about their friends all the time. It's not, it's, they're all kinds of things. There isn't a binary. It's interesting to see the way these young people, what what generation are they? Z now? Are we on Z? Yeah. And Z students are approaching this. They are embracing something in a way that kind of, makes me feel really positive, first of all, just about people being open-minded about things and accepting of just individual expression in a really healthy way. And also just showing that maybe what we thought was a pretty high ratio of normative to non wasn't as high. People are just afraid to speak out. And I think that's why this, this book is so timely because it's, you know, starting to go, oh, we see patterns across the animal kingdom that are probably more representative of our experience, but we've just been in a conservative country or a conservative <laughs> world. Yeah, we tend, I mean, the United States, South Africa, I don't, I don't know where they tend, but in the United States, you know, we tend to the puritanical, the pretty prudish. Um, I know somebody who gave this book to a friend for Christmas and the friend they, they maybe might have been considered dating, um, but then they, the friend broke up with them because they thought it was creepy to receive a book that had the word penis in the title. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. A ways to go. I, I'm looking forward to, I mean, I did, a, I did an episode on orgasm and it was looking at gender equality and orgasm. And I had a friend who just flat out refused to share it. And I'm sure that friend probably won't share this one either. <laughs> but, but, you know, what I do know, enough people are having this conversation that the momentum is building. I want to I shift a little bit to signaling. 
I mean, this is something where, you know, I had to really sit up when reading in your book. Um, I have to admit, for more than a decade, I read the work of evolutionary psychology researchers such as Jeffrey Miller and now his wife, Diana Fleischmann. And you can imagine at the beginning of your book, I was like, whoa, this is interesting. And I mean, you really challenge, particularly Miller's work for lack of rigor, um, you, do you not believe humans have evolved to pick up any signaling between sexes? Oh, no, I don't. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that there are ways to do the research, right, that are that are rigorous where I mean, the, the, the Miller study in particular that I take issue with is the, the quote unquote stripper study that, you know, doesn't do any direct measure. It, it, it tries to link hormone levels during a menstrual cycle with the tips that exotic dancers are getting right. Um, it's online. They're not dancing in the same places. As far as I can tell, you know, they're at different ages. Some of them are on birth, hormonal birth control, you know, and there were only, I think, what was it? 18 of them or something. It was a really small number of participants. And that's just not how you, and, and, and their conclusion was, is that somehow in all the cacophony of this experience with the dancing and the music, and I'm assuming smoking and, you know, probably inebriation of some kind, that the men who were um, having these dances done for them were detecting some signal of ovulation. And so during the peak of an inferred hormone cycle, they were tipping more. That's not how you would assess that. That's not how you assess whether men are detecting signals at peak ovulation. Do women have an experience and report different behaviors across a hormone cycle? They do. It's really interesting. Um, how well a putative sex partner would detect those that, you know, there's better work to be done on that than that particular study for sure. I would love to, I mean, yeah, that would be so interesting. So you believe you, you, it's not that you don't believe that it's possible to pick up some signals doing there. It's just how much is the question. Yeah, definitely that, and 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 the circumstances of it, right? Um, their conclusion of that study, they tried to link this to economics, and they, they were sort of. The issues I took with that study were it was very much a male gaze kind of study, right? And the way it was structured was that way as well. The way they answered, asked and answered the question, they tried to link it to economics. They, it was just all, it was a very hot mess, honestly. Um, and it's frustrating to see that when there are studies that can be done that do address these questions in rigorous ways. So yeah, no, I'm not at all, not, not at all saying that, that we don't communicate as you know, hormones affect our behavior. There's no question sure. about that in sure. our physiology. Yeah. This is an uncomfortable area, particularly because I do feel like in 10, 20 years, technology is going to be so advanced. We will be able to measure a lot of this with a bunch more. And we will look back on this and go, wow, were we really thinking that? <laughs> I think that's possible. I just wrote a story about artificial intelligence um, and its ability to detect um, facial expressions and what they communicate. And the research group that did it is at Google, actually. And the, the, what, it's a very early kind of preliminary sort of study, but they were saying that they had found commonalities, facial expressions across cultures, regardless of where people were living in the world, a, a set of facial expressions. Um, and somebody I talked to said, you know, one of the applications of this could be that you could use it in the clinic um, if you're a psychologist or psychiatrist trying to assess somebody's risk for death by suicide. 
that there there could be you're administering a thing called an anxiety scale or depression scale and something about the what the facial expressions they make could help you detect their level of risk for something escalating that way wow yeah, yeah. not yeah, now be, but in the future you know i mean imagine if you had these sort of google glasses and you meet someone new and they were like you're actually not really attracted to me you're <laughs> how scary is that concept right there's so many right. ethical minefields with that kind of thing of course right. yeah i think that's why they didn't really those glasses the first version the first iteration didn't really take off we was it's just people are freaked out right definitely that and a little bit of just like you know people kind of flexing a little too hard with them and they didn't oh yeah <laughs> didn't get the cachet they were hoping <laughs> Yeah, because if we'd gotten the cachet, like wearing like all sorts of other extreme signaling, it probably would have continued despite the moral, ethical yes, questions. Probably so, so. That's true. I do want I do want to touch quickly before we move to wrap up this conversation around the idea that Instagram fascinates me completely, and and I think that yeah. the the absolute impulse and all the apps that are designed to exaggerate your kind of where you are perceived. And I don't think many people are thinking about this consciously. I think it's more, and this is my point, it's much more of an unconscious sort of instinct, the desire to signal your where you are in your fertility curve. I mean, there's no 90-year-old person trying to signal their fertility. There's no one who's, you know, five years old, hopefully even on there. But the idea that you're in this window of your life and in this window, there is this kind of impulse. And I wanted to talk a little bit about this sort of arousal impulse and the mm-hmm. desire to sort of signal. And the reason I want to ask you about this is that I believe that on some levels, we talked a little bit about hormones and so forth and how they influence us. But I, it feels to me that we're not educated enough to understand. So we don't have the ability to apply our conscious filter to it and go, maybe I shouldn't post this because what I'm actually doing is I'm trying to represent something that's very should be very personal or whatever um and i also know that you shouldn't be trying to police that on some level that as an individual you should kind of be able so somewhere in the middle of that it seems like there should be some science (laughs) yeah and some happy medium of this is healthy expression go for it I think one thing, though, is that you, you you mentioned that there seems to be posting and it kind of signals fertility. But I'll tell you this. I would have no problem. I am postmenopausal, to be candid. I would have no problem posting pictures of myself, trying to look cute, et cetera, except that I know that, you know, what is the point? It would just be mockery, right? Somebody, people would just come in because they don't like things I've said or written or just don't like the way I look or whatever. And they'll, they would come in and then just kind of tear it down. And I'm just too old for that stuff. Sorry. I almost said something worse (laughs) just then. And, And so I just don't. Now that's a social pressure. That's not my own instinct to try to celebrate how I feel about myself. Right. And so I do think there's a lot of social pressure. The one on me is don't do it. And the one on them is to do it. Um, And it's completely, I think, developmentally appropriate for people who are going through and have gone through the transition into reproductive adulthood to do that. That seems like fairly typical for little primates, younger primates, not little, to do that, right? And there's got to be some space where we say this is healthy. We're not shaming you. This is absolutely sure. completely developmentally typical. Um, and then a space to say there are 
safety considerations that you should always keep in mind because not everybody out there is a healthy person who's going to be seeing this and responding to it. So yeah, there is a space and I'm sure the sociologists have been hard at work on this. (laughs) I just don't, I don't know what their work says about it right now. I I appreciate you touching on this. I know this sort of steps outside of the the book a little bit, but I think, I mean, one of the ways I'd like to, the way I'd like to close this conversation is around more research on women, more scientists, people like yourself. When you go to conferences, whether it's online now or you look out amongst your colleagues, how many people are studying the vagina with a, with a, I know there are more now than they were, you know, in the 80s, 90s, but with that intent to really sort of try to level our understanding of what's happening. That's a, that's a good question. Um, the sense I get is that there's definitely more interest. I mean, uh, there's a very high profile um, OB Jen, Jen Gunter, who's gotten, you know, she has a best-selling book called The Vagina Bible, right? And just normalizing, just being able to say the word. I gave a talk the other day to um, a science writing, I think it was a, gra- a group of students in science writing at um, Emory. And apparently there's very shocked with my free free use of the word vagina. They were just like, oh my gosh, <laughs> can't believe you're saying that word. I mean, they didn't say that to me. That was later. Um, so I think first of all, you have to kind of have this embrace, right? Of normalization of terminology and that kind of thing. I did include a study in the book where uh, researchers had looked at who's who's examining genitalia and what they're examining and that kind of thing. Still a huge bias. That was, um, I think, from 2015 or 2016. Still a big torque in the direction of penises and away from vaginas, even when um, I think when there are female authors on a paper. So there's still a whole lot to be done and to come at this from all kinds of perspectives, not just identified as male or identified as female, but non-binary and all kinds of other ways of looking at these questions and asking and answering them and dispensing with this idea of biological essentialism that biology says there are two sexes as though that were some biblical edict because that's not what biology says. Anything that you'd like to share for anyone you know, in Africa, anywhere around the world about your work or anything you are currently researching that you think is valuable for this conversation? Yeah, I I ended my book talking about the brain. Um, The last chapter is about sort of trying to decenter all this focus that we've been placing on the penis, because I do think that it creates this pressure of what I call impossible masculinity. It, It forces these people who identify as boys and men into corners that I think that they express outside of those boxes. You know, they're just they're kind of stuck. Right. And so I would really like to see that we you know look up from the pelvic area perhaps and focus more on the brains and this, this beautiful expression of human behavior that we have. We have such a wide expression of behaviors compared to almost any other species. And I think we should embrace that and enjoy it as the specialness that it is for us. Emily Willingham, thank you for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. Timothy, thank you so much for having me. A study by the Peterson Institute for International Economics argues that an easy way to position a company for profitability is to ensure 30% of corporate leadership positions are filled by women. Until we start rethinking our own anatomy at our core, we will not shift our conscious thinking towards a woman's capacity. 
Unfortunately, scientists such as Emily are beginning to turn the tide to show just how much we have in common versus focusing on our differences. And this will give us a much better shot at equality. Please take a moment and share your thoughts on this episode or just scroll down and rate us. It will mean a lot and elevate the podcast profile on Apple and Spotify. You can email me directly at podcast with an S at timothymaurice.com. Until next time.